This is a Willits Point Shea Stadium bound 7 express train. The next and last stop is Willits Point Shea Stadium. Yes, it is the Subway to Shea podcast. Anthony Rivera here with you talking about all the news and happenings surrounding that team from Queens, the New York Mets. Welcome, everyone, to episode 61. We got a great show coming up for you. A guest will be joining us later on in the episode, Matthew Searle. He is a MLB Network researcher, and he is the New York Mets statistician. It's going to be great having him on. We got a lot to talk about, a lot of good things happening this past weekend with the New York Mets, so much. But I wanted to start off by wishing all the mothers out there a happy belated Mother's Day. It's always an important day for me. Uh, My mother was a huge Mets fan, and, you know, I lost her in 2010. We always watched Mets games together. We didn't really go to any games. That was always my dad taking me, and at the time, he was a Yankee fan. But I kind of converted him over to being a Mets fan after all the games that we went to and getting ticket packages. He would always come with me to the games, but I was always watching the games with my mother on TV. Anytime I would get Mets gear, she would have to have the same gear, whether it was a David Wright t-shirt, the 06 playoff shirts and hats. We always had to have the same thing. So that was always a memory I'll always be fond of. Another one, my godmother, Ruth, we always would go to games together. Opening day is always a special day. That was the only opening day I ever been to. And we went together, I think it was in 2010, the second year at City Field. And the Mets beat the Marlins 7-1. I think it was one of the only times I got to see Johan Santana pitch. David Wright hit a home run uh, again the second time in a row in a season hitting the home run on opening day. That was a fun day. The weather was great because, you know, it's always tough on opening day to get nice weather, but it was a great day. So I just wanted to give a shout out. To all the moms out there, and happy Mother's Day, happy belated Mother's Day, because last week we were on Monday, so we didn't get to talk about this until the day after today, so happy belated Mother's Day to all the moms out there. We're going to get into the epic comeback against the Phillies more in depth with our guest Matthew Searle, who I mentioned earlier, but I want to hear from you, and you can tweet at me on Twitter once you listen to the podcast, did you stick around for the whole game? Did you stick around for the comeback? I got to tell you my story. Anytime a game gets out of hand, the Mets are down by a lot, and they were down 7-1 going into the ninth inning. Anytime the game gets out of hand, that's when I decide, you know what, You know, maybe time now, I'll go take a shower, get ready so that I could go to bed and get ready for the next day, get ready for work. So I left the game on the TV downstairs, and my wife was working and uh, trying to finish her schoolwork for her master's. And I go upstairs, but I have the Mets game on YouTube TV, so I could watch it on my phone. So before I go to take a shower, you know, I use the bathroom. Got to do that before you go into the shower. And this whole time that this is going down, I'm like, I cannot leave this toilet seat. I can't. 
I know we're going a little in depth on my life, but I could not leave the toilet seat. There was a little bit of, you know, that rally cap-esque thing going on with the Mets. So I said, if I leave this seat, this game could end. I did not leave the seat for an hour. I waited for an entire hour until the Mets finished this comeback. I even waited to see if Edwin Diaz could close out the game. He did. The Mets came back and won. And I just thought it would be funny to just share that. But let me know your thoughts on this whole comeback. I want to hear from you. Like I said, you can tweet at me once you've listened to the podcast. You can tweet at me. Did you stick around for the whole game? Did you stick around for the comeback? I want to know what your thoughts are on that. And with that said, it's time to bring on the guests. So joining me now is three-time Emmy Award winner Matthew Searle. Matthew is sort of a jack-of-all-trades. He's a MLB Network researcher and the New York Mets entertainment statistician. Matthew, welcome to the Subway to Shape Podcast. How are you doing, my friend? Oh, I'm doing great today. You know, it's always a pleasure to talk about the team with the most wins in the majors. And how often can we say that about the Mets at this point in the season? So uh, I'm excited. I love the way the team's playing. And let's talk some baseball. You know, you get to watch the Mets up close and personal every homestand. So what is your initial thoughts on this team with a little over a month into the season well i have a lot of thoughts on this team but i think the main word that stands out to me is consistency um they haven't gone on a long winning streak uh but they also haven't gone on a long losing streak yet either they've only lost back-to-back games once um and they haven't lost a series yet they've played nine series they've won eight of them and they split a four gamer with the braves so uh the fact that they're taking two out of three consistently they're in the the middle of a stretch where they are playing 14 straight games against nl east opponents and they've done quite well in that stretch haven't dropped the series as i said so uh the fact that they're just playing strong good baseball even though you don't have a lot of players on offensive tears lindor slumping a little bit eduardo escobar uh hasn't contributed much in the last 10 or 15 games or so but as a team they're playing just really strong baseball and i think that's great to see i think something really important you just said that even though they haven't you know, went on that long winning streak. I think the most important thing is that they don't go on a a long losing streak. They've been able to limit the losses. They've won every series so far, except for one, which was a split series, but they've won every series coming out of the season. You know, I haven't felt this way about a team, about this Mets team since 2006. It, It feels very special, feels very different. I know it's early. You know, they have a chance to dominate this division. Could we be getting some sort of, I want to say, hybrid of that 06 team? Because that team, you know, it had a lot of everything, especially offensively. It had a lot of power. It had a lot of uh, good hitters. Could we be getting a little bit of a hybrid with them and, let's say, a team like the 2015 Kansas City Royals where they weren't very hitting power, but they were, uh, you know, a small ball team getting things done? Could we be seeing something like that going on? Yeah, I think uh, I think that's a pretty apt comparison. Um, Obviously, that 06 team you had a lot of offensive firepower with Beltron and Delgado David Wright in the middle of the lineup of course Jose Reyes leading off so that team scored a lot of runs um, this team has been very good offensively, but uh, they have been more like the 2015 Royals, like you said. Uh, maybe Mets fans don't like that comparison, but they <laughs> did win it all. And what I like about this team is that they're having good, solid at-bats. Uh, I believe they lead the majors in two strike hits. 
They've been great with two outs. So they've been getting, they're giving you a solid at bat every time up. And Escobar earlier, but I also having guys like Starling Marte, uh, like Mark Canna, even though Canna hasn't played every game. When he's in there, uh, he's one of the league leaders in pitches per plate appearance every season. So having these guys that are professionals, I think really lengthens the lineup. And they're giving you good quality at bats and they're scoring runs when they need to. I mean, if you look at the, the splits on this team, um, they haven't scored that many runs in the first four innings of games, but from the fifth inning on, they've been one of the best teams in the majors and to me that just says uh that they're able to score when they need to and as we saw uh the other night in philly when they scored seven runs in the ninth inning they can just turn it on in in the blink of an eye and i think that's very exciting for fans also them hitting with two outs and runners in scoring position that was non-existent the last couple of years and to see this team knowing that there is a possibility that they can bring in runs with two outs has been huge. That's why they're off to this 20-10 and 10 start. You look at the rest of the division so far, it's, like I said, still early, but the Braves are six games back. Marlins, six games back. Phillies are seven back. Nationals, 10 games back. You know, so far in this division, the Braves are the one team that I think can turn it around, but uh, one of the reasons why I think that, you know, possibly it could not happen, they're missing some key players who really turned the team around last season. When they went at the trade deadline, they brought in Jock Peterson, right? Now he's in San Francisco. Jorge Soler goes to Miami. Eddie Rosario, who had a big playoffs, he's out 8 to 12 weeks with an injury. It wasn't just losing, you know, Ronald Acuna Jr., but they, you know, losing also Freddie Freeman is a different kind of player than Matt Olson is. I, I could see the Braves kind of staying where they were sort of last year before they made all those trades if, you know, these guys don't work out. They got a a, a very young, nice pitching staff, but I'm, I'm kind of worried about the offense for them. Same goes for the Marlins for me. They got a young pitching staff, which is going to drive us nuts moving forward for the next decade, but they're short on hitting. We've seen the Phillies. They have great hitting, but terrible defensively. They could use another starting pitcher and relief pitcher. And, you know, the Nationals are kind of in this, I guess, rebuilding mode. The Mets are ready so far in a little over a month. Three memorable games already. You got the ninth inning comeback from Saint against St. Louis. You got the combined no-hitter against Philly. And then you got this epic comeback, which I want to get into with you right now. You mentioned it a little earlier. That epic comeback in the ninth, down 7-1, score seven runs to beat the Phillies in Philly. It was the first time the Mets had come from a six-run deficit entering the final inning since September 13th of 1997. They went 0 and 330 in those situations before that night. And it was the first time the Phillies have lost when leading by six or more runs in the ninth inning or later since May 10th of 1994. That's from uh, Metfix.com. Now, I want you to be honest with me. Did you stick around for the whole game? And if so, <laughs> what were you thinking as this is happening in real time? Well, that's a great question. And uh, while I don't want to sound like a fair weather fan, I am a very honest person. And I will say I did not watch the entirety of the game. Uh, just because Aaron Nola was pitching so well and the Phillies got off to such an early lead that I think it was about seven to one in the fifth and Nola was still cruising. I said to myself, well, look, it's Citizens Bank Park. It's a, it's a hitter friendly ballpark and the Phillies bullpen obviously has some holes. So I'm going to wait until Aaron Nola is out of this game before uh, I continue watching because I don't want to see them get mowed down by this great pitcher. Um, so I, I was actually hungry. I, I went to the store, made a little snack run, came back um, and then started watching again when the Phillies bullpen got in the game and then of course you had that ninth inning where everything unraveled for the Phillies so quickly and came together for the Mets just as quickly and they were able to complete that comeback 
back. And, and to me, it was very emblematic of the change in the culture and the DNA in this team that I think Buck Walter is largely responsible for. Because you know as a Mets fan that so many times in the past, fans would talk about odds, uh, the typical ninth inning tease, where mm-hmm. they'd score a couple runs in the ninth. Seems like maybe they're going to mount an epic comeback. And then ultimately, they come up just a little bit short. And I think that game in the past would have been a game that they would have lost 7-6 to six rather than winning 8-7. to seven. But having guys like Starling Marte, who had such a huge night, I think three hits on the night, including uh, that go-ahead hit in the ninth, having those extra players and and having Steve Cohen be willing to bring those guys in to, to lengthen the roster and have that depth that the elite teams like the Dodgers have, that makes a difference in these early regular season games when you're getting these teams that maybe haven't started to figure it out yet. And I, I agree with the Braves. I think the Braves are going to contend eventually. I think they're going to uh, flip the switch. Uh, having Acuna back, he's starting to swing the bat well, too, now. Um, and obviously, they don't have Freddie Freeman, but Matt Olson's still a good player. I, I still think the Braves uh, are going to be a tricky team, and the Marlins certainly have good enough starting pitching that they can compete with you on most nights. But I think the difference between this Mets team and especially last year's Mets team, even though they spent over 100 days in first place last year, um, is that this Mets team can close the door. They can finish off the series and take the rubber games when they need to. And I think last year, they were winning games, but a lot of it was almost entirely because the starting pitching was so good and they were getting just enough uh, from the bench mob, uh, you know, guys like Tomas Nito and, and Luis Guillorme, who are still contributing this year, but aren't necessarily uh, forced into everyday roles. So for me, this is the time when they need to just keep rolling off these wins as much as they can and maybe create some distance in the division. Yeah, this Phillies team kind of reminds me of the last couple of years that the Mets have been through where, you know, they had... Uh, some decent solid like not last year but there have been seasons where they had some decent offense and then like the bullpen would blow it or you know they would get a good start from one of their pitchers and then you know the offense wouldn't hit that's kind of how I feel like the Phillies are right now I I gotta say I think the biggest play or the most important play of that game was that first hit from Starling Marte Uh, the team was already down seven to one he it's a little ground ball and he beats it out he could have easily just you know put the the brakes on the pedal there and, and just, you know, got the out, but he's beating it all the way. And then you get the Lindor Homer, you get a couple of hits from McNeil and Alonzo, and then we're off to the races. I thought that was such a huge move, a big game, and that was kind of Starling, the Starling Marte show, that whole game with the home run and then the game-winning hit. Uh, two of the biggest comebacks, I think of when I think of the Mets, was 2000 against the Braves in the bottom of the eighth, the whole Piazza home run. Obviously, you can't talk about comebacks without talking about Game 6 of the 1986 World Series. I think in in my lifetime, because I didn't get to see that World Series, I think that this comeback, considering all the variables, down 7-1 in Philly um, in the ninth with basically one or two outs, to get some runs in, and they score seven runs. How does this compare to you to other comebacks in Mets history? Yeah, I mean, I'm 29 years old. I've been watching the Mets for... Uh, most of my life, and I, I would say it's definitely up there, definitely at least the top three regular season comeback that I've seen. I'm trying to think of the others. You mentioned the one against the Braves. Piazza, I think, hit a grand slam. That was a huge one. Uh, there was one Gary Cohen was mentioning on the broadcast the other night where Bernard Gilkey hit a go-ahead home run. I think that was the last time they did it in 97 before those uh, 330 straight that they had lost when they'd been trailing by at least six 
uh, going to the ninth. So it's definitely up there. I mean, the the most exciting comeback I remember in person was 2019 at City uh, when Todd Frazier hit that big go-ahead home run mm-hmm. off Sean Doolittle, but that wasn't a huge lead that they had to erase. So uh, this one definitely uh, goes up there in terms of just improbable games because it's one of those games where if this had been a home game, uh, you could see a lot of people leaving early to beat traffic yeah. uh, and then realizing that they had missed this epic comeback. So moral of the story, don't leave early to beat traffic. <laughs> but uh, but as you said, I mean, that's, uh, that's the impressive part of it right there is that they did it on the road in Philly. I mean, I remember a couple of years ago, I'm sure you remember, uh, when the Mets lost a game very similarly where they were leading by six going into the ninth against the Nationals. But that was at Nationals Park. Um, so the Nationals did it in their home ballpark. So I think to do that on the road just makes it that much more staggering. A very huge, important part of this comeback, not just the offense, but the Mets bullpen. Obviously, Taiwan Walker did not have any good stuff that night. Uh, he only pitched four innings, gave up nine hits. Obviously, the six earned runs, uh, two walks, two strikeouts. But you go to that bullpen, Chase and Shreve, who's been very good taking over for Aaron Loop. Uh, no one's going to be what Aaron Loop was last year, but he has filled in, you know, admirably. Uh, one inning pitch, he only gave up two hits, no runs. Adonis Medina, who had a big game that day, uh, two and two-thirds innings, only gave up one hit. Edwin Diaz closes it out. What do you think of this bullpen? They had a, hot, a lot of highs and a lot of lows so far uh, this season. What are your thoughts on what you've seen so far from these guys? Well, I think with so many things going well for the team and just uh, with how well they've performed overall to this point in the season, it's easy to to look for an area where there are more glaring weaknesses. And I would say that is the bullpen compared to, to other areas just because mm-hmm. the starting pitching, even without DeGrom, has been so good. They've scored runs pretty consistently, so that's going well, even though you don't have a lot of players tearing it up other than maybe Jeff McNeil and Pete Alonzo. But I do think this bullpen is better than people give it credit for, um, especially because Drew Smith has had such a breakout season. I mean, Drew yeah. Smith still hasn't allowed a run yet. He's made 11 appearances, 12 and a third innings, only given up four hits, uh, 16 strikeouts. So Drew Smith has really come through. The Mets certainly won the Lucas Duda deal from all the way back in, t- in 2017. Um, Joely Rodriguez is another guy. I know when the, uh, the Mets traded Miguel Castro to the Yankees for Joely Rodriguez, I kind of questioned that move. I said, well, we do need another lefty in the pen to compliment Shreve, but why are you getting rid of Miguel Castro, a guy who seems like he was figuring it out, especially with the spin rate on his slider, but Joely Rodriguez has made uh, a bunch of consecutive scoreless appearances as well, so um, I do think losing Trevor May to injury isn't great. Um, Obviously, some of the long guys that they've had in there, Trevor Williams, Sean Reed Foley, who's now injured, have struggled a bit, so I do think uh, assuming the team is still in contention uh, at the trade deadline come July, early August, they will swing a deal for an arm, but I I think it's a better unit that people give it credit for. And honestly, I think that combined no hitter where you saw the aforementioned Drew Smith and Joely Rodriguez combined to, to blank the Phillies showed that this is a better unit uh, than people realize. Uh, Someone like Adam Ottavino has really good stuff. He's not the kind of guy you want to bring in with runners on, especially if it's like a bases loaded, nobody out situation because he's a little bit effectively wild, you could say. And certainly uh, Seth Lugo has been really good, but maybe he's not quite the shutdown guy that he was a few years ago. So, there, there are a few holes here and there. I wouldn't necessarily say it's the strength of the team, but I do think it's underrated and a lot of guys like Drew Smith, as I said, are coming through and pitching very well in this early going. You know, having to handle this whole injury with Trevor May, obviously he had the stress reaction on the uh, lower portion of his humorous uh, shutdown for at least four weeks. I know he struggled uh, to begin this season. 
and they are losing this arm in the bullpen. I wonder, because I know they're going to have to make some move at the deadline, or maybe they'll bring up a, a couple of the youngsters down on the farm who have pitched very well out of the bullpen. I wonder if eventually, with Trevor Williams not pitching as well, you know, Seth Lugo has always wanted to go back into starting and to make him maybe a long man where he can come in and, and pitch a couple of innings. We've all seen Buck push these pitchers, you know, more to start the season, giving them more innings and trying to find a balance, seeing what they can handle. You know, way different from last year and what we saw with the way Luis Rojas managed the bullpen. What do you think of maybe putting Seth Lugo in that kind of position? Also, do you like the way that Buck has handled the bullpen so far? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question. Certainly, Seth Lugo, I've always been a huge fan of his stuff. We know just how good he can be. I remember I went to a game, it might have been 2018, where Seth Lugo started against the Yankees, and I think he pitched six or seven scoreless innings, and the Mets ended up um, shutting out the Yankees. So certainly, I think he he could be a, a very effective reliever, but personally, I'm not a fan of moving guys between roles and I think once a guy is established in the bullpen and he's having success don't mess with what's working so I think as long as Seth Lugo is pitching well he can be your relief ace slash a guy who can go three innings if you need him to on a given night he can be kind of that long man but I think if you try to stretch him into a place where he's trying to throw 100 pitches per outing and then he has to switch up his pitch mix and then has to worry about going through an order two or three times then maybe you're distracting him from uh, what's been so effective to this point in the season. So I would leave Seth Lugo where he is and maybe look at other options if they need to to fill a hole in the rotation. Um, as to your second question, I think Buck has done overall a, a very good job. I know uh, the one time of the year when the Mets did lose consecutive games and I believe the series opener um, in Philly at one point there were a couple eighth inning uh, meltdowns where they lost the lead because the bullpen wasn't effective and people were questioning, oh, why did Buck do this? Uh, whatever. Um, look, I, I think with any manager, you can question how they use pitchers, but there are a lot of variables, including days of rest, how often a guy needs to work, established roles. And I think overall, Buck has done a very good job. And one of the important things with the bullpen is that people know what their roles are. And obviously, you know that Edwin Diaz is the closer and he's in lights out. I should have mentioned Edwin Diaz before when we we're talking about the bullpen because Edwin Diaz has been absolute money. Um, and certainly is showing signs of that guy who was the reliever of the year back in 2018 for the Mariners when he was absolutely lights out in the ninth inning, 57 saves that year. Um, but uh, overall, I think Buck has done a nice job. He's He trusts his players. That is one thing about Buck that kind of reminds me of Terry Collins is that he is a bit of a player's manager, and he's going to give those guys the benefit of the doubt. So I think if we do end up criticizing Buck for his bullpen usage at some point this year, it might be because we feel he's left a guy in for a batter too long. Mm-hmm. But I think overall, he's, he's brought guys in in the right situations, allowed them to trust their stuff. To know their roles, and I think that's why you're seeing uh, an overall very solid performance from this bullpen. You know, I even think about this in pertaining to the long man. Jacob Degrom is going to be coming back soon, and someone's going to be left on the outs because I know a guy like Max Scherzer who who needs to go every fifth day. They're not going to do a six man rotation. So whether it's maybe a Carlos Carrasco or Taiwan Walker, or if someone gets injured, a David Peterson, one of those guys can quite possibly fill that role uh, as a long man. I, I don't know if I see Trevor Williams just staying in this pen for
for too much longer. He's just been too ineffective right now. Uh, very effective, Edwin Diaz, like you mentioned. He has been lights out just like 2018, where now we're, we're thinking of, uh, will the Mets re-sign him in the offseason? So he has had a great start. Also, another guy who's had a great start, we got to talk about the polar bear. Uh, once again, before we do that, I'm here with Matthew Searle. He is the MLB Network researcher and the New York Mets entertainment statistician. Matt, Pete Alonzo, that polar bear power, he's had quite a week offensively. Not only has he hit for power, but he's also spreading the ball across the field. If you look at his last seven days uh, this season, and he has had 357 batting average, three home runs, eight RBIs. He's got a walk in there, um, seven strikeouts, but he has 10 hits in 28 at-bats for the season so far, batting 276, seven home runs, 26 RBIs, two home runs, five RBIs in the series finale against the Phillies on Sunday. What do you think of this new approach by Pete Alonso at the plate? He's not just, you know, going for the home run. He's not just going for power. He's letting it come to him, but he's also spraying hits all across the field. I love it. Um, I think it is absolutely the right approach for him to take the next step in his career where he's not just a pure slugger, but an all-around great hitter. And uh, as someone who studies the numbers and anybody who's paying attention to baseball right now is aware of the fact that the ball is not traveling much this year. So home runs are down across the league. Overall offense is down. So you look at a guy like Pete Alonzo, and in my mind, he is always, because of the kind of tears that he can go on and the fact that he can hit his home runs in bunches, he's always going to be a 40-plus home run guy. I don't care what the composition of the ball is, uh, what the early season weather factors are. At the end of the day, Pete Alonso is going to have 40 or more home runs or at least something close to that. But then the question is, okay, well, if he has 600 at-bats in a year and he hits 40 home runs, what is he doing in those other 560 at-bats? And, and for me, the going to right field is such an important part of his development as a hitter because that says to me that he's taking what the pitcher is giving him. And he's a guy who is always up there in terms of highest – exit velocity highest average exit velocity so if he can use the whole field he's going to be uh, such a bigger weapon for this Mets offense because there's not going to be a lot of places where opponents can attack him and it's going to be extremely hard to pitch him so it's going to be one of those Aaron Judge situations where you're constantly thinking do we just walk this guy do we just put him on first base because we're too concerned about giving him something that he can drive out of the park or even if we try to pitch around him he's going to find a way to get a hit so for me this takes Pete from a guy who, and I wouldn't even say Pete was a one-dimensional hitter. I think Pete has always been a, a smart hitter, a guy with a good knowledge of the zone, someone who gives you good at-bats. But I think this just makes him all the more dangerous because there are just very few spots where you can pitch him, where you can get him out, and where he's going to get himself out. I think the only problem Pete needs to be aware of is sometimes you can tell he's going up there, he's looking for the downs, as Keith Hernandez would say. He doesn't get cheated up there. He's going to give you that big home run swing. But I think if he knows that he can go to right field and drive these pitches for line drives and get base hits that way he's going to keep collecting the rbis even when he's not in the ball out of the ballpark because he's going to get those hits with runners in scoring position you know you look at this team even if you look out from the outside looking in you don't follow the team as closely as we do and you see the mets record 20 and 10 you see the players on this team and you, you do think of power you do think of some guys with a lot of power and the mets offense 
they're not really hitting power and they're sc- still scoring runs playing small ball to do all this you mentioned the ball do you think that the way this offense has succeeded uh, with with less power and more of that small ball do you think it's because of the dead ball or just a change in offensive philosophy this season I, it's a great question I think um, at, at the risk of sounding like hop out I do think it's a combination of the two in the fact that I think uh, in listening to what Eric Chavez was saying over the offseason about assuming the role of hitting coach and the type of philosophy he was trying to um, impose on these players. I do think he is not a fan of players selling out for power and being a Joey Gallo three outcomes type of player. I think he would prefer that these are all good all-around hitters. But I also think you have players like Jeff McNeil who has come out and said, look, there was a series when we were in Arizona and I crushed a pitch to right field and the ball just died and uh, didn't even get to the warning track. So after that, I stopped trying to hit the ball out of the ballpark. And so I think you see players taking it upon themselves based on the data that they've received from the at-bats that they've had in their firsthand experience saying to themselves, look, I can't try to hit for power, especially if I'm not a natural power hitter, if I'm not like Pete Alonzo where I can hit it out of any ballpark at any time, I have to figure out a better offensive approach. And so for me, the team in a way has taken on the characteristics of Mark Hanna as a batter. And Mark Hanna, you look at his stat line, he's not going to blow you away with power or average, but you look at his on-base percentage. He's a consistent on-base guy, and he's going to work the count. And I think that all the players on this Mets roster adopting that philosophy and taking that into their at-bats has just made them a stronger offensive unit because it's tough to build a team like the Phillies where they went out and they got sluggers like Nick Castellanos and Kyle Schwarber and thought that they were going to be able to just outslug other teams. But it turns out that with the way the ball is carrying this year, or not carrying, I should say out slugging other teams isn't really uh, a great option and that there are other ways to go about it so i think uh, the mets went into this season with the philosophy of trying to use the whole field, trying to have better uh, at-bats in clutch situations, but I also think that first-hand experience is telling them that they can't just try to outslug other teams. I think a, a big difference for this Mets you know, team run by Buck, uh, you know, owned by Steve Cohen, is the ability to adapt to things that are going on. So with the Mets now, you have these batters adapting to the ball, um, they're adapting to the ballpark. We're getting more players that are less power and are, you know, spray hits all over the place. Where, you, like you said, you got the Phillies who are, you know, more Sockham hit home runs because that plays well in Philly. Uh, same thing with the Yankees, right. with like a Joey Gallo, right? Half of those home runs that some of these guys hit at Yankee Stadium, they're not home runs in a lot of the other ballparks. You got the short uh, right porch. So you, a lot of the times these teams need to, I guess, placate to their field. And I finally feel that the Mets are finally doing that now. You know, when they opened up City field for offense it was more catered to Jose Reyes than it was to David Wright and then they you know once Reyes was gone they started bringing the fences in uh they got rid of that big green wall which was like you know the, it was a monstrous wall the the, the fences were so far back but once they brought that in you know 
before David got hurt, his stats changed, and he he became more of that player he was when he played at Shea Stadium. So watching this team adapt to all the things that are thrown at them, you got to attribute that to Buck and this just new aura, this new era around this Mets team. Another thing that uh, no one probably would have thought would have happened if, if Cohen wasn't running this team was releasing Robinson Cano. Uh, they did that yesterday. Um, I talked about it last week when they uh, designated him for assignment, but they finally released him and they're going to eat that $45 million. You look at what he did so far uh, in this career for the Mets this season. He only had one home run, three RBIs, and he was batting 195. He struggled, was very slow defensively, slow to the bat. Were you surprised by his release or do you think it was the right move? Well, I was somewhat pleasantly surprised by it just because I think as fans we are accustomed to financial decisions gaining precedence over baseball decisions and as we know in this case Steve Cohen said make the baseball decision and of course I'm sure he knew in his heart of hearts that releasing Robinson Cano was the best move for this team uh, to move forward even though yes he is going to have to kick in a, a significant chunk of money in order to cover the rest of his contract so I was a little bit surprised by it but at the same time I think that it is very indicative of the new direction uh, that this franchise is going in the way that Steve Cohen is going to run his business from now on because at the end of the day he wants to bring a winner to Queens when he did that introductory uh, press conference a few years ago when he was first introduced as Mets owner he said my goal is to bring a world championship here within three to five years well we're already in year two so uh, if we're going by that self-imposed deadline then time is ticking and look even though Robinson Cano uh, had a lot of respect as a veteran presence on that team Francisco Door talked a lot about his leadership, and certainly maybe there were some things he could provide on the bench. You still need guys who can produce, and I think realistically looking at 39-year-old Robinson Cano and looking at his spray charts and just his batted ball data, it was hard to imagine that he was going to automatically turn that around and somehow be productive going forward. Um, for me, I always look at um, 2008 Carlos Delgado. He got off to a terrible start and then absolutely tore it, off, tore it up in the second half and was an MVP candidate. And so there are occasions uh, such as that where a player, an older player, can come out of a funk and still be really productive. But I also think that when it comes to Robinson Cano, he had a lot of chances. They gave him some time. Buck was starting him somewhat regularly, giving him at-bats. And he just did not show enough to show that any type of turnaround was around the corner. So I think that ultimately it was the best decision. And yeah, you have to eat some money, but this is the new look Mets. This is the new era Mets where at the end of the day winning baseball games and trying to build a championship franchise and championship culture that takes precedence over the salary owed to one player yeah Buck gave him a lot of at-bats it took away from guys like Dom Smith and J.D. Davis who are younger and we want to see if they can really contribute to this team I think it also hurt him of how well uh, Travis Jankowski played because if he played more towards what we got from Albert Amor Jr. last year I don't think Travis Jankowski would be on this team but he's hit well he's plays great defense he's got speed he was a big part of uh, the doubleheader against the Braves he scored uh, the tying run against the Phillies in the comeback and you always need that speed on the roster so these guys are going to get a lot of playing time and you know basically for me it just shows 
shows the Mets are past this Wilpon era. And like you said, they're making baseball decisions uh, to make this team better. Matthew, I can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast. Please let everyone know what you're working on and where they can connect with you on social media. Well, first, Anthony, thank you for having me on the podcast. Always a pleasure. Um, if you want to follow me, you can see me on Twitter at, at Cyril Baseball. That's also my Instagram handle. Be sure to follow that as well. If you want to read my writing, you can find me at SyrilBaseball.com, S-E-A-R-L-E, baseball. Um, yeah, I, I'm always happy to share my work. Love talking with Mets fans. Love sharing my passion for this great game. Matthew, thanks again so much, and I would love to have you on uh, Subway to Shea again. You take care, man. Thank you. That was Matthew Searle. He is the MLB Network researcher and the New York Mets entertainment statistician. Make sure to follow him on Twitter. He gave you his Twitter handle and where you can read his work. Make sure to give him a read and a look and a follow. Final notes before this train leaves the station. The Mets claim, and let me see if I can say this name right, Gosuke Kato from the Blue Jays. He is, and let's look him up right now, infielder for the Blue Jays. I'm on MLB Trade Rumors. The Mets had a vacancy in their 40-man roster, and he will be optioned to AAA. He signed a minor league deal with the Jays over the offseason, and he's been a nine-year minor league veteran. He had a short stay with Toronto, and he will be on the Mets. He was hitting two, a slash line of 292, 383, 457 in 700 career AAA plate appearances. I'm getting this all from MLBTradeRumors.com. So he will be in AAA Syracuse. I'm sure if someone gets injured on the infield, we may see him come up. That's going to wrap up our show for today. Thank you so much for listening in. Again, thank you to Matthew Searle. It's been a pleasure talking to him and putting this out there for all you Met fans. You can follow me, the show, the Subway to Shea podcast on Twitter and Instagram at Subway to Shea. Listen and subscribe to the show on Anchor.fm, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Pocket Cast. Turn on those notifications to never miss an episode of Subway to Shea. If you are a new listener to this podcast, welcome, thanks for joining us, and I hope you consider subscribing on any of the platforms I just mentioned. Also, make sure to share it with your fellow Met fans. Let them know that this is the Mets podcast to listen to. If you've been a supporter this whole time, you know I can't thank you enough. This show wouldn't be where it is without you, and I always appreciate your support. This podcast is global. I mention it every week. This podcast is not only played in the United States, but also has reaches across the globe. So no matter where you listen, make sure to take a few minutes to write me a review and let me know what you think of the show. You can do that on Apple Podcasts. You can give me one to five stars. Hopefully you're giving me five stars. Leave comments in the review section. That helps me to help this show grow each and every week. And you can also rate the show on Spotify if you listen on there. That's another option when listening to this podcast. Don't forget to follow my work for Rising Apple. Rising Apple is a New York Mets site on the fan side and network. You can read my articles by going to risingapple.com or checking out the links in the description of this week's podcast episode. Make sure to follow Rising Apple on Twitter at Rising Apple Blog and the fan side network at Fansided. Thank you everyone for tuning in. I appreciate you all so very much and that will do it for this week's podcast. Always remember to listen, subscribe, share, and review. For Anthony Rivera, you've been listening to the Subway to Shea podcast. Let's go Mets!